This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome. Over the past quarter century, John and Mary Lou Missile have published a number of books, both histories and novels, and some soldier letters about the Seminole Wars. These have been well received. The Seminole Struggle, or as some call it, a reckless waste of blood and treasure, may be the definitive one-volume history of that long conflict between 1817, and some say it began even earlier, and 1858. Along the way, they've published a book of poetry, This Torn Land, about the wars composed during that era, and three novels, Hollow Victory, Elizabeth's War, and What We Have Endured, all approach this period with a historical foundation, but a novel's flair and punch. In this episode, they join us to tell us about the struggle and the suffering both sides endured, with the Seminole bearing the most egregious examples. John and Mary Lou Missile, welcome to the Seminole Wars Authority. Well, thank you very much for having us. You are two historians who've written three novels about the Seminole Wars. Why did you write them? We do it on the Seminole Wars because that's what we're expert in. We've studied the Seminole Wars. We've written several histories of the wars. And the novels are just, uh, for me at least, a natural outgrowth of that. The way we work here when we do our work together is Mary does most of the research. That's her thing. I'm not a great researcher as far as if I can't find it pretty fast. I turn it over to her. She does the heavy lifting on the research end of it. When she gets everything all together that she can find, then she'll put stuff into like a long chronological word document, like our book on the Third Seminole War. That extended to 2,000 single-space pages of everything she could find on the war. I'm the writer of the group, and I take that, and I make hopefully a readable story out of that history you know, factual, but make it something that's easy to read and enjoyable. Doing the novels just kind of naturally came from that. While writing, I picture scenes in my head of the characters, the real people, what they were doing in those no-win situations or having to make really difficult decisions. And after a while, those scenes, I started getting more of them in my head, and I started putting them down, writing them down, uh, more like a screenplay, because that's kind of the way I think. I think in scenes as if it's on a stage being acted out. And as time progressed, these scenes started to get more of them, and I actually wrote a screenplay about the Second Seminole War. Of course, Hollywood come knocking at our door to make a miniseries or anything out of this. True, but they should. So then... I started to flesh it out and made a novel out of it. We sent it to the Florida Historical Society, and they nicely published it for us. So that was the first book, Hollow Victory, which is a novel of the Second Seminole War. Who was Patrick D. Smith? What did he write, and why is an award with his name on it sought after, and which you have taken home two prizes? He was a great Florida novelist and historian, best remembered for his book, A Land Remembered, about Pioneer Florida. Everybody, I think, has read that book. 
It's used in the schools. He's really well remembered for that. The award is handed out by the Florida Historical Society every year for what they feel is the best work of fiction about Florida history. Hollow Victory won it in 2012, and then our second novel, Elizabeth's War, won it in 2016. And we shall discuss that book in just a bit. Before we get into your novels, I want to discuss the book of poetry that you also published. This Torn Land features poems from the Seminole Wars period. How did the idea for that book come about? The poetry came about just by accident. I was doing research at the public library using the microfilms, searching some aspect of Florida history when we were writing our first book, and I occasionally stumbled on a poem that was written about the wars. And I thought that was so interesting and unusual that somebody would write about poetry about the war, so I just made a copy of it. And as I was doing more and more research, I come across poems, and I just started collecting them and putting them in a file folder until the file folder got pretty thick, and I thought, well, I'll just go back and look at this. I thought it was worthy of being published. We took that to the Little Wars Foundation. They published that. A lot of the poetry at the time, people did that a lot. They would send these things into newspapers, and newspapers, printing business at the time there, a lot of times there would be like a gap from all the stories that they already had set up for the presses, and they would take these poems that people sent in, and they just find one that fits the gap, so to speak, of the right length, and they print them. That's how we found them. And we also found collections by, there were a couple of army officers who, um, had written collections of poems, and we found those, and we used those in the book also. What poems stand out? There's a number on the day battle, because it really shocks people. And then later on, you find where you get more of the sympathy for the Indian. After the war starts dragging on, people start saying, why are we doing this? And you start getting this poems about sympathy for the Indians, or the capture and death of Osceola, things like that. Obviously, we don't come across them too often. There was a couple that we got from our good friend Moses Jumper, Jr., who's a present-day Seminole poet. He knew we were doing our works, and he said, well, you don't have all the poems. And so he graciously gave us a couple that he had written. We had looked pretty much all the period newspapers that were available and gotten everything we could out of there, and we just really haven't been looking for them and haven't found any examples lately. Tell us more about Hollow Victory. Okay, it's a novel of the Second Seminole War. The title refers back to the fact that every side won victories in the war, but in the end, it didn't gain them much of anything. I mean, if you take the day battle, the big one that kind of started it all, the Seminoles scored a great victory there, but in the end, it just started a war that cost them thousands of lives, either from during the war or the ones that got shipped to Oklahoma. For them, yes, it was a great victory, but in the end, didn't do them very much good. And if this happens all throughout the war on both sides. People win, but they don't really come out on top in the end. The Army can say, yes, we've got nine-tenths of the Seminoles out of Florida, but the cost to the Army was great. The Army at the beginning of the war was only about 7,000 men, and during the war they lost about 1,500 soldiers 
died mostly from disease. So the cost to the army was great, the cost to the nation. This was one of the longest, costliest of all the Indian wars. That's part of the problem there is the fact that, yes, the government can say, oh, we won the war because there's not many Seminole left in Florida, but the cost of accomplishing that, I think I once figured for every Seminole that they sent west, they spent about $10,000, which was a lot of money. One of those things we have at the back of one of our books there is there's no winners in the Seminole Wars, just survivors. That worked on both sides. Soldiers who came down here, they were happy just to get out alive. In Hollow Victory, who is Colonel William Wooster? Is he a composite character based on actual officers from the wars? He's based on two people, actually. One of the first books we did after our first history, The Seminole Wars, came out. We did a project for the Seminole Wars Foundation. It was biography of Colonel William S. Foster, who had served in the early part of the war. He was a senior officer. Most of the time, he was second in command. During the first two years of the war, he was at most of the major campaigns. This character, Colonel Worcester, was kind of based on him in the early part of the war. And then later on, you have Lieutenant Colonel John Spray, who was his captain at the time. He came down, and he was working with Colonel Worth later in the war. Colonel Worth is the basis for the Worcester character later in the war. Worcester is a combination, of course, of Worth and Foster. Colonel Worcester's sidekick, so to speak, is Lieutenant Spark, who is based on Lieutenant Sprague. That's on the Army side. On the Seminole side, you have a character named Kachi Hajo. Whom is he based on? Very loosely based on Kawakati. Kachi Hajo is, Kachi is like cat, and Hajo was warrior, and Kawakati is wildcat. That's where the name comes from. What we attempted to do on this book was create a set of characters on both sides, parallel characters. Both Colonel Wooster and Kachahajo, they have young daughters that they have to care for. They both have a close friend that they talk to. I bounce back and forth between the two, trying to give both sides of the conflict as accurately as we could taking these characters and putting them in those, like I said, no-win situations or tough decisions that needed to be made, exploring how these people might have thought what might have been going through their heads. That's what fiction is good for. If you're doing factual history, you have to stick to the facts, obviously, which we've done in our history. But that really doesn't get you into the minds of people at the time what they had to think about, what they suffered, what they had to put up with. You can do that in a novel. You can get much closer emotionally to the subject. You can let your imagination go, and you can create situations that really have nothing to do with it. There's a love story in there, <laughs> okay? You can play around with that and not change history in any way. Some of the lesser characters, especially the famous ones like Andrew Jackson or... General Winfield Scott, they're based on the historical impressions that they've left. One of the methods we use when writing this, all of our novels we've done, is generally a chapter will start out with like a letter being written by one of the characters, or if it's an Indian, 
It'll be giving a speech or just praying to the Great Spirit. I start out with that, and that really lets you know what they're thinking. Also, it's a good vehicle for glossing over time. A year has passed, so to speak. You can use that letter to say what happened in the past year and to show that time has passed. That proved very useful, and we've used it in the other two novels as well. What is the benefit to using fictitious people to tell a story that's grounded in history? Well, if there isn't, you know, really a bunch of records on particular events or time spans, you can feel free to add what you want when you're doing fiction. In fact, in Hollow Victory, in the introduction to it, I point out we've done historical nonfiction, we've done historical work, this is fiction. Don't confuse the two. I'm having fun with this. I'm not trying to follow the historical record super closely. This is an enjoyable project for me. Doing real history is a lot of work. It takes a lot of research. It takes time to verify things. Writing a novel is fun. You just let your imagination go. If it's not perfectly historically accurate, well, it's not supposed to be. How do you maneuver around telling a story and not changing the history? Oh, no, you can't. Right, the historical facts, the basic ones, you can't change. There was no happy ending to the day battle, at least for soldiers, and that has to stay that way, and that's what you have to work with. One nice thing about writing historical fiction as an author, you know how it ends. You know, your basic storyline is there. You just get to fill in the details the way you want to fill them in. What's a particular memorable scene you'd like to share with our listeners? There's one scene later in the war when the Army has really driven the Seminole into the Everglades and Cachajajo's closest friend, Gopher John, who is a black Seminole, he's decided time to give up. They're closing in. For him personally, it was better to give up because the Army had guaranteed him freedom out in Oklahoma. Going through Katsuhajo's mind is, should he give up? Working out his attachment to the land, that I thought was one of the better scenes, where he has to make this decision, too, and decide why is he fighting. How closely did you work with the Seminole to ensure that you got the Seminole characters right? Not directly, other than the fact just talking to friends, studying their culture as limited as we could, because obviously we're not Seminole, so we really don't understand the culture. General friendship and knowledge of the Seminoles informed that. One of the things I've always pointed out in any of our works is that because there isn't, especially in the true histories, the Seminoles didn't leave written records, so we don't have that body of knowledge like we do from the military side, where there's letters going back and forth all the time between Florida and Washington. But you've got to look at the Seminole. They're people. They have the same wants and needs. They get angry about the same thing. They're human, and you can write it from that perspective. You can walk in their moccasin, so to speak. What's been the Seminole reaction to your books? Generally good. They still sell it at the museum bookstore. How did you adapt to including Seminole perspective into your novels then? Our first book, The Seminole Wars, we wrote that when we were fairly new into the subject and we really didn't know a lot of Seminoles closely. You have to build a factual history from sources that you can cite. 
tell where you got that information. There just really isn't a whole lot of seminal information out there. We knew it was lacking in that. In the introduction, we made mention of that. But there's always people who will say, oh, you didn't get enough. We got as much as we could at the time. But over 15 years, we became closer to Seminole. We learned more about their culture and their views on things. So when we did the revised edition, the Seminole Struggle, we were able to write it more from a Seminole perspective, but still keep it as balanced as possible. But like I say, you really have a hard time working on something like this from one side that isn't represented well in the historical record. What story were you trying to tell in Elizabeth's War? Elizabeth's War is a novel of the First Seminole War, and this book really grew out of our interest in what became known as the Scott Massacre. That was an event in November 1817 which helped begin the First Seminole War. The week prior to that event, the United States soldiers from Fort Scott attacked the Seminole village of Southtown, which was in southwest Georgia. In retaliation for the attack, the warriors ambushed a small army transport boat that was slowly working its way up the Appalachia of Cola River, and they were on their way to Fort Scott. The vessel was commanded by Lieutenant Richard W. Scott. On board was 40 soldiers. Half of those men were unarmed invalids in need of medical attention from the surgeon at Fort Scott. And also on board were seven women and perhaps four children. By the time the attack was over, all the soldiers were dead with the exception of six men. They managed to swim across the river to safety. Of the women and children, the only survivor was 17-year-old Elizabeth Stewart. She was taken prisoner by the Indians. Elizabeth was one of the wives of one of the soldiers stationed at Fort Scott, and the fictional part of the story is inspired by her experiences. But Elizabeth herself is a part of the historical record. Yes, that's correct. That's one of the reasons we wrote the novel, was because the story itself was so important, but we didn't have enough information about her, so we had to create the fictional part around her. Now, this novel probably deviates from history more than the other two. You had a situation here, you had a young woman who was married to a soldier taken prisoner by an Indian, whom we made a handsome, young, mixed-blood Indian, and who later ended up marrying another soldier. You've got a love story in here. And that's kind of what we built it around, sticking to the facts of what little there was really known about this woman. But what's different about this one, you know, like I said, we we tried to make a a fun story out of this, still telling the story of the war, getting you into what people were going through. But because so little was known about Elizabeth, especially her time in captivity, because she really didn't talk about it, we're free to play around with that as much as we wanted to. But what's different? And Mary will tell you about that. She does a lot of work on this part. And one of the things that intrigued me about this Scott Massacre was that there was no list of the people who were slain in the attack. I mean, I wanted to know, we both wanted to know who these people were. What were their names? Where did they come from? What sort of personalities did they have? So the first thing we did is we went to the National Archives in Washington 
I told him what we were doing. We were doing the research on the Scott Massacre, and I was looking for a casualty report. And I was told that there was no official casualty report. Of course, that surprised us, since the Army has always been so fanatical about paperwork. So I said, well, you know, how can I find more about these people? So they suggested that I look at the muster rolls. Well, they were large format printed forms in large books, and they had the listed the status of each man in the company is listed at the beginning of each month. Not knowing who these people were, we started looking down the remarks column, and we would find a notation that said, killed in action, November 30th, 1817. We started off adding a name to our list, and we went down through that as best we could. The next thing that they told us to look at to get more information was what is called the registers of enlistments. Now, that lists every man enlisted in the Army between 1798 and, I think, 1914. Once we got home, that involved ordering microfilms from the Mormon Church in Utah. And at the time, that was one of the few places where the films were available. I would go in, order the microfilms, and when they came, I'd go to the local church reading room on my lunch hour and after work, and I was able to find out most of the other names. Today, it's a lot easier because the microfilms now are on Ancestry.com. I had subscribed to that so I could double-check some of my earlier work. Anyway, with these two sources, along with a few others, allowed us to come up with what we consider a nearly complete list of the casualties, along with their basic physical descriptions and a little biography data on each soldier. And we thought that was so important that we added that information in the back of our novel. I guess what makes this book unusual for a piece of historical fiction is the fact that, like, the last 75 pages of the book is actually a short history of the First Seminole War. There's a list of all these men in the back there, plus any information we could find on Elizabeth or her husband, because her second husband, John Dill, became a very prominent man in the town of Fort Gaines, Georgia, where they settled after his enlistment ran out at the end of the First Seminole War. We put all those facts in the back of the book because we wanted at least some place for this list of people that died in that attack to be remembered somehow, to be written down somewhere. How fair is it to call the Scott incident a massacre, given that the boat did have armed combatants on board? Generally, I see a massacre as being something where one side really doesn't have a chance to fight back. The classic example is the day battle. People called that a massacre for years, but then when our good friend Frank Laumer did all his work on it, people came to realize it was a battle because the soldiers fought back. They ended up nearly all dying in the end, but they had this opportunity to put up a defense and fight back. So today we call that the day battle. In the instance of the Scott Massacre, like Mary said, this is a boat full of invalids. Half the soldiers were unarmed and sick, and they were in the river at the mercy of the current, they got ambushed. They really had no opportunity to fight back. So that, yeah, that we consider a massacre. Sure, they tried to fight back as best they could, but you got to remember that this is an open boat. 
and there's hundreds of warriors on the shoreline hidden in the foliage there. They got up and they shot basically all at once. And so even the soldiers who were physically capable of fighting back, most of them were killed right at the outset or wounded. Now, when they'd been manning oars or pulling on lines to drag the boat up, they weren't standing there with their guns at the ready. Their opportunity to fight back was extremely limited. I'm sure some of them did pick up guns and fire back, but the odds were so overwhelming, there was really no defense they could put up. Well, they were basically like sitting ducks. On the water. Why did Elizabeth survive? There are legends... <laughs> The prominent one being that the warrior who took her prisoner, he was named Yellowhair, and I use that for the character who rescues her in the novel. The story is that he had once been helped by a white woman. He was sick or something, and that in exchange for that, he protected Elizabeth. Like all legends, you never really know the fact, but that's the main story about why she was spared. And it may just have been luck. The others may simply have been shot in the opening volleys there, and she may have been the only one who wasn't killed, just happened to be lucky enough that she survived the initial onslaught and was taken prison. How historically accurate were your passages about Elizabeth's time in captivity? Um, Yeah, that's pretty much all made up in the novel, because she really didn't leave any record What's this business about the discarded script notes? There's this one story that the English were distributing bank notes, English bank notes, to the Indians, which, of course, the Indians had no use for, and that she pinned them to her petticoat, and that's how she, the money she had when she was rescued, was able to live in Fort Gaines. Well, the chances of that happening are extremely slim. She was captive for four months. The idea that she was still wearing the same petticoats after four months and not changing into an Indian sort of dress of some sort is more likely. It's a good story, but don't believe it. (laughs) After she was rescued by Andrew Jackson's army later in the First Seminole War, we don't know exactly what happened with her first husband, John Stewart. As it turns out, there were plenty of John Stewarts at the time. There was a very common Scottish name, and there were a lot of John Stewarts even in the Army at that time. There were two good candidates. Our good friend Dale Cox, who was researched, he lives up in that area, and he's written several books on the First Seminole War, different aspects of it. He came up with a list that is very similar to ours as far as the casualties go, which makes us feel better that our research was good because he came up with the same name. But he came up with a different John Stewart from the one that we think it is. And it's really hard to tell which one is the actual John Stewart she was married to and what happened to their marriage. I think Dale Cox's version, I forget, it's been a while since I've read his book on it. Um, I think his John Stewart died. My John Stewart actually goes from being a sergeant to a commissioned Army officer, which was rare at the time, and he gets transferred out west. And for some reason... He and Elizabeth split up. There's also the fact that they may not even have been legally married. Out on the frontier, there are a lot of common law marriages. We really know nothing about that. There's no paperwork, no marriage certificates. Divorces were almost impossible to get at that time. It had to be an actual act of the state legislature. After the war, she settled in Fort Gaines, Georgia, 
with another sergeant from the same company, John Dill. And because it's a very small settlement built around this fort, John Dill becomes one of the most prominent citizens in town. By the time of the Second Seminole War, he's actually a general in the Georgia militia. If they had money, where it came from, he might have been saving up his money while he was in the Army. We really don't know. But like I said, he did become a very prominent person in Fort Gaines, Georgia. So you have great doubts about the script story. No, that's not in the novel. That's actually, that's a legend that people for years have been bandying about that she pinned these banknotes to her petticoat. One of the points Mary will bring out something we considered very important about when we were doing our research. We also found out that she and John Dill had operated their house as a hotel. The house is still standing. When I did my research, I located the owner of the house at the time, and up until a few years ago, she was running it as a bed and breakfast. And so we told her about our interest and our research that we were doing up there to Fort Gaines, Georgia, and were able to stay in their house. We also found the cemetery where she and her husband and then 10-year-old boy had been buried. That was an emotional thing to actually go when you've studied so much and written about, even if it was fiction, to go to her house and stay in what the owner of the place at the time said she believed was Elizabeth's bedroom. What is the greater point you wanted to represent in your novel? Mainly the thing we wanted to represent was this story about the people who died on that boat and the war in general, how the Seminole suffered in that, but basically wanted to remember the people who were killed in that attack. The attack was, as far as wars go, it was justified in the fact that the army had attacked the Seminole village and they were bent on retaliation. But then again, these were soldiers just happened to be on a boat and suffered. And it was a way of explaining how both sides suffered in the war. Suffering is a constant theme in your novels. Why is that? In all our novels, it's the suffering that we want to point out on both sides. And that's something when you get talking about battles and politics and dates and places, you miss that suffering. And that's what the novels are good at pointing out. In What We Have Endured, you and Mary Lou partnered with Willie Johns from the Seminole Tribe of Florida. What was the benefit of this collaboration? Willie Johns, for those who haven't met him or didn't meet him, he was one of the most respected leaders in the Seminole Tribe of Florida. He'd gotten a master's degree in history from the University of Miami. He was a de facto tribal historian, and he was the first Seminole chief justice of the Seminole tribal court system, which was, of course, a great honor. And he lived in the Brighton Reservation, which is near the town of Okeechobee on the north side of Lake Okeechobee. Every year, we would go up representing the Seminole Wars Foundation to participate in the Battle of Okeechobee reenactment. I narrate the battle, and of course we set up our table to showcase the books. The books that you can find online at missal, M-I-S-S-A-L-L dot net, or of course at the Seminole Wars Foundation site, seminolewars.us. And Willie would always come over, he's just a you know, very friendly guy always come over and sit down with us and chat. And every now and then he'd say something like, I'd like to do something to honor my great-grandmother who lived through the wars. 
And after a while, we just took the hint and said, okay, well, let's do something. Let's write something. The biggest problem was the fact he really didn't know his great-grandmother. She died before he was born. Historical record was minimal. Even the recorded name didn't sound seminal. Just a little bit of family history was all he had. We knew she was born in the middle of the Seminole War period. And we wanted to tell the story of the Seminole Wars through the whole almost 50 years of the struggle. We came up with a fictional character, a female character, who at the beginning of conflicts in about 1812, she's in her early teens, and we just follow her through the whole three wars. I like to say she's always in the wrong place at the wrong time. If there's a battle that happens to be there, when villages get attacked and burned down and they get run out, well, she's at every one of them, it seems. She is a stand-in for all the real Seminole who went through those things. I think what made the tale more interesting and personal is that she's now an older woman, and she's telling her life story to a young girl, and the girl is asking questions of her. Yeah, the little girl's like a stand-in for the reader. What kind of questions that you or I might come up with, she can ask this older woman relating her life story. We also use, again, this thing where people are either writing letters or having talks that we put in italics in the text there to fill in those gaps because there's a lot of things, especially the geopolitics and everything, that a seminal woman wouldn't have understood. And so we use these little vignettes to explain those things, to carry the story along and do for the passage of time because we're covering a period here of almost 50 years. How did Willie Johns then contribute to this collaboration? I've been working with Seminoles for 20 years now, more than that, and we've picked up things, and Willie and others have told us bits about the culture, but we've also realized there are parts of their culture they don't want to share with a lot of people. People they trust, they'll share it with, and we were very honored that Willie trusted us enough to tell this story. There were things he would tell us about, and I'd say, okay, Willie, we're going to write something, and we're going to hand it to you. Tell us if we've gone over a line here, if we things you don't want us to put in there, or if we've gotten wrong, or if there's things that you think could be added to it. And that was his big contribution was the cultural part of it, which we wanted to have in there. Because we're not Seminoles. We don't live with this every day. We don't really understand the culture. We have a lot of hints, so to speak. We needed that input from them to make it as real as possible. And one thing we did do in the book is at the back of the book, there's maybe a 12, 15 pages. It's a historical timeline, factual historical timeline of the war. So a reader can read about something that takes place in the story and they can actually look in the back of the book and say, oh, yeah, this did happen. This village did get burned. There was this battle. Because this story, more than the other two novels, actually, follows the historical timeline very closely. We wanted to show what these people went through. That's important to us as historians is that it shifts our perspective. Because when you're writing military history, you're, you know the war and how it progresses. But here you're writing it from a seminal perspective. You're putting yourself in their shoes, so to speak. And it's a very emotional story. A lot of it was like in the medicine bundles, you know, things that are in there. 
you know, he would tell us in the strictest confidence, you know, things that were in a medicine bundle, but we knew that, no, we're not going to say what's in a medicine bundle. And quite honestly, over the years, I've kind of forgotten what's in there. Things that I knew that, you know, I wasn't supposed to know, so to speak. But in order for us to understand how these things work, he would tell us a little bit. But again, like I said, it's in the strictest confidence, and okay, I don't need to remember that, so I don't. <laughs> You've got to realize with the Seminole, and I'm sure all Native Americans, because they were lied to so much, cheated so much by the whites, they are very protective of the things they have of their culture, and it takes a long time for an outsider to gain their trust. And like I said, that's why we were so honored that Willie trusted us enough to allow us to work with him on this project. And it meant a lot to him, and it means a lot to us. How satisfied was Willie Johns with the final product? This is the sad part of the story. As the book was getting near publication, Willie's health started to deteriorate. He kept in touch, and finally, when the books came out, when they were first delivered to our house here, it seemed to be getting better in the month or so prior to that. And when the books came out and we got our first copies of them, I called him up and said, hey, did you get the books? You know, what do you think? And his sister answers the phone and said, well, his health has gone bad. He's not doing well. And he's in the town of Okeechobee. I said, listen, you know, it's probably got books on his front doorstep. So what she did is she sent the grandson over to his house. And he came back to the hospital and he walked in the room and he showed Willie the book. And sadly, our friend died the next morning. He saw the book. book. We were giving a talk a few weeks ago about the book. And I told the audience there, we wish there'd been a third chair at that table because we were looking forward to really doing book signings with him and just getting to know him better. And it just never happened. How satisfied do you think the tribe has been with this novel? From the Seminoles we know, no one has said anything bad about it. His sister was one of the people who read it over for accuracy and even corrected a few things, and she was happy about it. Another thing that we were really honored about, after Willie's funeral, they held a get-together at Willie's house there, and we were the only non-tribal members who were invited to that. So that, too. Those who read it were pleased with it. I mean, obviously, there's going to be somebody in the tribe who said they shouldn't have said that, but they can go argue with Willie. (laughs) How do you continue to raise awareness about the Seminole Wars with the general public? We're still active in the Seminole Wars Foundation. We go to the reenactments and set up the table and take part in some way, either narrating or giving talks, being part of it. We don't take part in the battles. I don't dress up in either Indian or military clothing and go out there in the battlefield. But we do contribute what we can to preserving and disseminating this history, both through works of fiction and nonfiction. That's a good place to stop our discussion. John and Mary Lou Missile, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars Authority. Thank you for having us. Thank you, and have a good day, Patrick. This podcast is copyright 2023. The Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminalwars.podbean.com or seminalwars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.